Would you turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 2? Genesis chapter 2 this morning. You know, as I asked you to turn there, I realized I forgot to make an announcement. Um, So bear with me for a second. If anyone is interested in helping and serving in our Wednesday night Awana, um, Kate, would you raise your hand? Please see Kate. Uh, She is looking for volunteers and any capacity, any way that you, you think that you may be able to help out with the Wednesday night Awana, uh, please come and see Kate after the service. Uh, I know that she can fill you in more information and where you can uh, be plugged in. So if you're looking for an area in which you can serve and help out, uh, this would be one way to, to do that. So see Kate after the service. Genesis chapter 2. In a moment, we'll look at verses 15 through 17 here in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to bounce around a little bit in Scripture, so bear with me, but this is where we'll begin. This is uh, this morning's sermon I've titled, He Will Never Leave Thee. He Will Never Leave Thee. I heard the story about a little girl who, for some reason, was supposed to take her birth certificate into school with her. Her mother had solemnly warned her. She said, whatever you do, do not lose your birth certificate. It is of tremendous importance. But lose it, she did. Later, she was sitting on the steps of the schoolhouse crying. And the janitor asked her what was wrong, and she replied, I've lost my excuse for being born. Those who haven't discovered the joy of their salvation, the joy of being the temple of the living God, have indeed lost their excuse, their reason for being born. Salvation um, is is so incredibly important. At the moment which the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, moment which we're saved, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells every single believer. The moment when God takes up residence within us is at the very moment of salvation. And we need to understand the importance and the necessity of our salvation and how man's house came to be empty. Why is it that God was not already dwelling within us from the very beginning that man was created? Uh, Why do we need to have him come and dwell within us today? Why aren't we just today born having God's presence dwelling within us? Now, in the previous two weeks, we looked at how we as believers are God's house, that we are the temples of the Holy Ghost. We looked at the need for us as God's house and his temple to live the supernatural life at all times, to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, according to what it says there in Colossians 3, 16 and 17. And this morning, we will look at the work of the builder and the designer. Someone built and designed these houses which we are living in, and we need to know more about the one who built and designed. When we talk about receiving salvation, we usually use the word saved when we talk about a person who is saved, a person who is a believer. The word saved is really an interesting word when you stop and think about it. Some people think it is too plain and it's too simple to to use and we need something better. We need to call someone a, a follower of Christ or a believer in Christ or a Christian. And as a result, many people will just shy away from that word saved altogether. But the word saved is actually a really good word. It is a biblical word just like the opposite of saved, which is to be lost. The reason both of these words are important is because they describe the two conditions of the human heart. At any point, you're either saved or you're lost. 
This describes accurately the position of every single human being. A person is either saved or lost. There's no middle ground. There's no gray area. There's no on the fence. You're either saved or you're lost. No one is in the process of being saved. You're either saved or you're not. And based on what we've been discussing, whether you're saved or not determines whether God is dwelling within you. The Bible makes it clear that only those who are saved have God dwelling within them. In Romans chapter 8, and verse 9, the Bible states, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. You can't have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within you if you are not saved. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Everyone goes through their lives being lost for some degree. Everyone is born apart from Christ without the Holy Spirit living and indwelling within them and they continue to live this way with an empty house until they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and are saved. Otherwise, they remain lost regardless of how much knowledge they have up here. They, how often they've attended church how much they've even given to the church, how much they volunteered in the church, it all means nothing if you don't know Jesus Christ here personally in your heart. And as long as a person is lost, God will never dwell within them. I am personally thankful that God saved me. I am thankful that he came to dwell within me when I was only four years old. God spared me from so much saving me at just a four, at four years old. I already gave my parents plenty of gray hair during those first four years. I know they were thankful that God saved me early on uh, because it could have been and it probably would have been much worse had God not saved me until I was maybe 14 instead of four. It could have been much worse for them. Even after I was saved, I promise you, I continued to get into mischief though. But I'm sure it would have been so much worse had God not saved me at a young age. Either way, my parents were always good about pointing us kids to Christ, even when it came to discipline. They were quick to remind us that whenever it came to discipline, they were disciplining us only because they loved us. Based on that, I'm convinced that I was my parents' favorite child. But like all of us, we need more than a good and a godly example of parents to consistently discipline uh, to uh, discipline us to believe in Christ. One Sunday evening after church, as my mother was putting me down for bed, she walked me through the Bible, what it means to be a sinner, what I deserved because of my sin. And the fact that I have a Savior who died for me and for all of my sin, and I simply had to call upon him, believe on that fact that Jesus Christ has done all the work necessary for me to be saved, for me to be on my way to heaven, and I would be eternally saved. As a four-year-old boy sitting beside my parents' bed at night on a Sunday evening, I trusted in Christ as my Savior. And ever since then, God has been dwelling within me every day. I spent the first four years of my life as a lost sinner on my way to hell, and then Jesus saved me. Now, before we fully understand what it means to be saved, we need to understand what it means to be lost. Why isn't God already dwelling within us? Why aren't we saved the moment we begin to exist? Why, what does it mean to even be lost? What does it mean to not have God dwelling in you? So first of all, I want you to notice, as we talk about what it means to be lost, I want you to notice, first of all, the day that God moved out. 
the day that God moved out. In order for us to understand the good news of the gospel, you need to understand the bad news. There's no good news without bad news. Otherwise, it's just news. So when we begin to speak about being lost and what it means to be lost, we speak of being in a state of spiritual death. That's what it means to be lost. You're spiritually dead. You're on your way to hell. Spiritual death refers to separation from God. This, this concept of spiritual death is probably best illustrated through the very first man to ever live, a man by the name of Adam. Adam's death and our death are linked throughout the ages of history. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 22, the Bible says, For as in Adam all die. For as in Adam all die. In Romans 5.12, it also speaks to this truth. It says, wherefore, as by one man, and the context is speaking about Adam, as by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. But then the question needs to be asked, if we all died in Adam, what kind of death did Adam die? When God created the world and he created everything that is in it, he placed Adam and he placed Eve in the middle of this beautiful garden, the Garden of Eden, where he gave them everything they would ever need to be healthy, to be happy, to be holy for all their days. God met all the needs of Adam and Eve for their bodies, for their souls, and for their spirits. They were fully taken care of, of all that God had provided for them. And in Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 7, look at what it says here first in verse number 7. Genesis chapter 2 and verse number seven, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Where the Bible speaks of the breath of life here, that God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. It speaks of Adam becoming this triune being, body, soul, and spirit. God gave him that spirit. They were created perfect. They were free from the effect of sin. Sin didn't even exist here on earth at that time. God himself was dwelling within Adam and Eve. But in order for man to have the ability to truly love God, man had to have the opportunity not to love God. It's not love if you're forced into this relationship. Man was given a choice to accept God or to reject him. The basis of man's choice is outlined in our passage here this morning. Uh, look with me at verses 15 through 17 here in Genesis chapter 2. It says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. When God spoke of death here, he wasn't threatening Adam, but he was giving him a warning. When parents tell their children not to touch the hot stove, it's not a threat. It's a warning. In this passage, God was giving Adam and Eve a choice. If Adam chose not to love God enough to obey him, then he says he would die. In the very next chapter, we find out exactly how Adam responded to that warning from God and just... Turn maybe one page over to Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 6. Notice what it says here. It says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. 
When Adam and Eve here chose to disobey God, God moved out. He may not have committed murder. He may not have stolen something. Adam didn't. But he failed to love and to obey God according to what God had instructed. At times it may seem hard to believe that the one sin, the single sin that sent shockwaves throughout the rest of human history wasn't murder, wasn't cheating, wasn't lying, wasn't something so heinous that we might think of today, but was a simple act of disobedience, taking of a fruit that they were not supposed to take of. That was it. That was the one sin that sent shockwaves and a ripple effect throughout the rest of human history. If we're told that, before we know the story, that there is one sin that would affect the entire human race, this would probably be the last thing that we think of. That someone took of a fruit that they weren't supposed to take of. David had some major sins that he was guilty of. Murder, adultery, and for those he paid dearly and his family paid dearly but Adam's sin had a ripple effect that passed down throughout the entire human race the truth is that it doesn't make a difference what he took he was guilty of sin and he was no longer clean the house that he was for God was no longer pure and holy it was now defiled by sin the swift judgment of God had been clearly laid out back in Genesis 2 and verse number 17. Again, he says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. It's not gray. It's not, you know, undetermined. It's crystal clear, black and white. This is the one tree out of all the many trees in the Garden of Eden that you can eat out of. One tree, off limits, don't eat of it. Very next chapter we read about it, that the two of them took and eat. I ate of the tree that they were not supposed to eat of. The moment Adam disobeyed God, he died. Now, some of you might be wondering, did he really die, though? The Bible records that Adam went on to live a total of 930 years. Theologians and scholars, they differ about whether or not Adam died the day that he ate the fruit that God specifically told him not to eat of. And I'm here to tell you that Adam died the very day, the very moment he disobeyed God. We just need to understand just how he died. First, Adam died immediately in his spirit. Adam first died immediately in his spirit. In the biblical sense, death is not primarily separation from the soul and from the body, as we might normally think of death today. For example, if, if I were to drop to the floor right now and stop breathing, hopefully someone would come check on me. Uh, Brother Jeremy, you'll probably catch me before I hit the floor. Yes. Um, and in this hypothetical situation I fall to the floor someone comes and checks up on me and you find no pulse I'm declared dead even though I may be dead physically I know Levi is terrified about that thought don't worry buddy you got a great mom she's capable No. Um, even though I may be dead physically in the biblical sense I would not be dead in the biblical sense, I would have just moved on from this earthly tabernacle, which is withering away the moment you're born, to move on and to dwell in my heavenly tabernacle. Jesus declared in John eleven twenty six, he said, Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Shall never die. So if I believe in Jesus Christ, that's true to me. 
that I shall never die. That is what Jesus tells us. When my physical body fails to live and I breathe my last breath here on earth, I will open my eyes to be in the presence of God and be more alive than I've ever been here on earth. Some of you might attend my funeral, but I'll be walking and I'll be leaping on streets of gold, worshiping my Savior face to face. And I know this to be true because in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, it tells us that when we're absent from the body, then we are present with the Lord. And the point I'm trying to make is that there is a drastic difference between spiritual death and physical death. Physical death is what we typically know as death. It is the separation of the soul and spirit from the body. The very moment that Adam sinned, though, he died spiritually, even though he was still alive and breathing physically. The Holy Spirit of God was living within him and moved out. Before Adam sinned, Adam was able to have personal fellowship with God. But once he sinned, that was all gone. Now, the reason that the Holy Spirit was dwelling within him, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and verses 11 and verse 14, it says, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. You see, Adam couldn't have a personal fellowship with God with the Holy, without the Holy Spirit being present. But all that changed the moment he sinned. That's why God banished him from his presence. Adam now came under condemnation of sin and death the moment he disobeyed God. And so he was banished from the presence of God, no longer able to fellowship the way that he was able to do so before. A group of college boys, they wanted to keep the football team mascot, which was a goat, they wanted to keep it with them, so they made all these intricate plans so that they could bring this goat back and, and smuggle it into their dorm room. What about the smell, someone asked. They said the goat will just have to get used to it. <laughs> College boys may be content living in a dirty place, but the Holy Ghost will not. The Holy Spirit is the life source of the human spirit. In John chapter 1, verse number 4, it says of Christ, it says, In him was life. And the life was the light of men. God is the light. God is the life of men. When Adam sinned, God moved out. And the light went with him. Adam was now spiritually dead. He was spiritually darkened. It wasn't until centuries later that death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ would take care of these problems of man. Adam not only immediately died spiritually when he sinned, but he also died progressively in his soul when he sinned. His spirit was supposed to receive guidance from the Holy Spirit. As Romans 8.14 tells us, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. The Spirit of God leads us, shows us, motivates us, encourages us what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to say, how we're supposed to live. As his spirit received guidance from God's spirit, it would then provide guidance to his soul, which was his mind, his emotions, his will, which would then motivate and direct his body, his physical aspect. Adam experienced what no other person has experienced. He went from being a spiritual man to now a natural man. The presence of sin reduced him to only be able to operate his soul because he was no longer being guided by the Spirit of God. 
And anyone who lives by their emotions, anyone who lives by their feelings, knows this type of living is not a recipe for success. Rather than Adam being the master over himself, he became a slave to sin when he rebelled against God. When the Spirit of God moved out, Adam's soul, his mind, his emotions, his will, took over control of his life. Adam was no longer living as a God-centered man as he was before his fall. He was now living as a self-centered man. He was completely and utterly dominated and controlled by sin. Sin had complete dominion over him. When you talk to people who have no spiritual life and they're completely driven by their souls, by their mind, by their emotion, by their will, how they feel, you find that they're always focused on themselves. Everything they do revolves around if they feel good enough to do it or what's in it for them to get out of it. Everything is centered on the mind and the emotion and the will. This is the way the natural man operates, completely controlled by his soul. These people, they do what is right in their own eyes and in their own hearts. In Judges 21, 25, it gives us a glimpse as to what happens when the natural man does that which is right in his own eyes. It says in Judges 21, 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. You see, without a leader, without someone that is God-centered, that is going to focus you in the right direction, and when you're doing things according to your mind, according to your emotion, according to your will, what you think is right in your heart, which the Bible says is deceitful and desperately wicked. When you're going by that, with nothing to properly guide you, it is a recipe for disaster. The same is true for the natural man. Without the guide of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we're going to follow what we feel, what we think is best. And our hearts are prone to wickedness and to deceit. The sad thing is that believers act this way sometimes as well. As if we have no guide. We don't have the Holy Spirit living within us, even though we do. We act as if it's how we live and how we feel before we move and do anything. When Adam sinned, he died immediately in his spirit. He died progressively in his soul. But he also eventually died in his body as well. In Genesis 5 and verse number 5, turn a couple pages over. It sums up for us all the days of Adam. It says in Genesis 5 and verse number 5, it says, And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. And what do those last three words say? And he died. And he died. He died in the sense that you and I think of. He stopped breathing. His physical body was no longer functioning. His heart stopped beating. He died after living 930 years. Eventually, he died physically. It took him 930 years to die physically. But Adam had been dead long before his heart stopped beating. In a few weeks, some of you might be thinking about decorating for Christmas, maybe getting a Christmas tree. We will decorate our Christmas trees with all sorts of lights, different ornaments. And what happens to the real trees? Any of you get real trees? Some of you? Okay. Few of you. The rest of you get artificial trees? Yeah? Does anyone else celebrate Christmas? Oh, okay. Other than a handful of us. All right. You're welcome to celebrate with us if you don't have a Christmas tree and don't want to celebrate anywhere else. Okay. But those of you that get a real Christmas tree, what happens to that tree after New Year's and into January, into February, if you're getting lazy and haven't taken it down yet? 
What happened to the tree, Alicia? Right? It starts turning brown. The leaves fall off. Pine needles are all over your house. It's dying. Why? Because it's dead. It's cut off from the source. The moment you bring it home, it's got some life left in it. And it's looking good for a certain amount of time. And I don't care how long you keep it up, it's dead. It is still dead. It is revealing on the outside what is true on the inside. No matter how much it's decorated, no matter how much you may try to hide the fact that the tree is dead, it is dead. And this is what happened when Adam sinned. He began to die physically. It took 930 years for the outside of him to catch up with what happened on the inside. But it eventually caught up. He lived 930 930 years, but eventually his body stopped functioning, his heart stopped beating. When Adam sinned, he cut himself off from his life source, the Spirit of God. Just like our Christmas trees are cut off from its roots and live for a while, but eventually will reveal on the outside what is true on the inside, that it is dead. I I hope I really didn't ruin your Christmas right now. I, I... feel terribly about that if that's true. But Adam was in a unique situation because Adam and Eve, they were the only ones that were created in perfection. They had the Holy Spirit of God because they were still a natural man and without the Holy Spirit of God, they could not have fellowship with God. We today have a different beginning. We today are not born with the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We're born enemies of God because of a sin that has been passed down to us from Adam. Believers don't experience the Holy Spirit's departure from their lives because the moment we're indwelled, the moment we're indwelled at this moment of salvation, we are indwelled permanently. But believers today do experience from time to time loss of fellowship with God when sin is allowed to come into our lives and remains unconfessed. We might go through the motions and try to cover up the fact that our lives are really a mess. Because sin is running rampant, but eventually it is all going to catch up with us. It doesn't matter how well we cover it up when we come to church. It doesn't matter how good we dress. It doesn't matter how eloquently you pray or how loud and joyfully we may sing or how much money we put in the offering plate when it comes up. The connection is lost between us and God. Others think they are saved and try to hide their their sin by decorating themselves and and coming to church and trying to worship. They'll dress up, they'll look good. There is no life within them. They'll never be able to please God because even though their temples are decorated so nicely on the outside, God is not there on the inside. Many of these people are even aware that something is not right and that leaves them feeling miserable. They're cut off from the source of true life and are spiritually dead and they will one day die physically. Someone has said that the heartbeat in our chest is but a muffled drum beating a funeral march to the grave. The moment that Adam sinned, God moved out and death was passed down to all men as sin entered into the world. But notice second, the day that God moved back in. The day God moved back in. This is where we get to the good part. God brought salvation to all who come to faith in him. When we talk about salvation, we're not just talking about God rescuing man from earth and bringing him to heaven. Salvation is about God coming down from heaven and making himself available to man once again. Sin has made an eternal mess of things. 
But when a person is saved through faith by the grace of God, God reverses the effects of sin. Romans 6.14 tells us that we are no longer bound by sin because grace has conquered. When Adam sinned, he immediately died spiritually. He progressively died in his soul, and he eventually died physically. When a person is saved by the very grace of God, he is immediately justified in his spirit. He is progressively sanctified in his soul, and he is eventually glorified in his body. Nearly 2,000 years ago, God entered the realm of humanity, and he did something that would forever change the course of human history. He moved back into man. Everything started through the work of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a godly woman named Mary, where the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, took on human flesh and was born here on earth. One of the Old Testament names that is given of Jesus is the name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which Matthew tells us, it says, being interpreted is what? God with us. God with us. Jesus was the firstborn of a whole new race, the ones who God dwells with. The birth of Jesus proved that God could dwell within mankind. It is truly amazing to see how much God loves us as this was all done for our benefit. However, the greatest attribute of God's character is his holiness. And God's holiness cannot just overlook our sin. It requires punishment for our sin. If God were to simply turn a blind eye to all of our sin or to just sweep it all under the rug and say, you know what, it never happened. I never saw any of it. He'd be violating his own holiness. His holiness requires that sin must be punished. We're told in Nahum chapter 1 and verse number 3. Now you better memorize verse number 7. But verse number 3, you're off the hook. It says that God will not at all acquit the wicked. You know what that means? He's not going to turn a blind eye to sin. He's not going to say, you know what, I'm going to let him off the hook. He's not going to acquit the wicked. So it's great that God wants to dwell within us, but if we're still on the hook for all of our sin, what good does that do any of us if God's not going to inhabit a filthy home? Romans 4, verses 4 through 8, offers us some words of comfort and reassurance that through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the moment we believe in Jesus Christ, we are justified in our spirit. Listen to what it says here in this passage. Romans 4, verses 4 through 8. It says, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. You see, the barrier of sin that was present between us and God has been removed through our faith in Jesus Christ, allowing God to now dwell within us. But not only are we immediately justified the moment we're saved, our souls are progressively sanctified as well. Our mind our emotion, and our will, which is what our soul is. All come under the submission of the Holy Spirit. And we can now begin to live like we're the new creations in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it tells us, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. You're not the old man that you were before. 
The moment God saves you, you're a brand new creature. You're no longer destined for hell. You're now destined for heaven because of your faith alone in Jesus Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Justification is immediate. God immediately declares you just, declares you righteous, not because of anything that you've done, but because of everything that Jesus Christ has done, whose faith you're placing yourself in. He's done it all. You're immediately justified. But God starts at that very moment, this process of sanctification, the very moment you're saved, which is him preparing you to enter into his presence. Because you can't enter heaven and into God's presence looking the way that you look right now. Some of you are close, but you can't do it yet. He's still working on me. He's still working on you. But fortunately, God is daily making us more into the image of his son. He's sanctifying us. Philippians 1.6 tells us, it says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Things don't change overnight. We don't just snap our fingers and we go from being a horrible sinner to being saved and now the perfect human being to ever live. It doesn't happen. Maybe you're able to make a few major lifestyle changes right away. But there is a lot about you that still needs to change. There is a lot in your life that still needs to be cleaned up as you prepare for your heavenly entrance. I've been saved for over 30 years and I am still struggling with letting go of the things that my flesh is clinging to. That old man, the relics are still here. I am struggling every day to shed those relics and to live that new life that God has called me to live. Because that old man doesn't want to let go. And he's not going to let go without a fight. Things don't change overnight. The Lord helps us cleanse ourselves to get cleaned up of all the areas that are slowing our progress, but he also expects us to be working actively on ourselves. He's going to do work, but he expects us to be working as well. We don't just sit back and say, all right, God, go to work on me. Let me know when it's time for me to go to heaven. No, he expects us to be active on our part. As a young man praying about what God would have me to do, I can tell you that I struggled with God's call on my life. Believe it or not, I had it dead set in my mind, Paige, you'll appreciate this, that I was going to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a lawyer. Can you picture it? Some of you can. I'd be charging you all exorbitant rates. You wouldn't be able to afford me. No, I'm just kidding. I wanted to be a lawyer. Everything about it sounded exciting to me. I had a cousin who's a lawyer, a really high-powered lawyer, and I'm thinking, that's what I want to do. He drives a nice car, lives in a nice house. Man, I want to do that. I want to argue with people. I want to twist words. And I want to, you know, I don't do that now. I let the word of God do the teaching. But it sounded so exciting to me. So when I was planning in my mind what law school I would attend after high school. I'd spoken to a few people. I'd done a little research on my own. And it seemed as if everything was falling right into place. At least almost everything. All of a sudden, God started closing doors. And you know what I did? I started trying to force them back open. I want to do that, God. That sounds exciting to me. Don't close that door. And I'm trying to, I'm struggling to find the doorknob and to try and force it open and God's holding it down, holding it closed. 
But the Holy Spirit also began to pull me in a different direction. I took this as a challenge. Again, I decided that I was going to put my foot down as well. And I was going to try and enforce God's will a different way. Bad idea. Things got worse until I submitted to the Holy Spirit's guidance. And I answered the call to the ministry. It wasn't a path that I would have ever chosen on my own. But from that moment, I can tell you that I've never looked back. I look back and I'm thrilled for what the Lord has called me to do, even if I was initially dead set against it. I'm thankful for the Lord giving me a loving wife who is equally thrilled about the ministry and doing his work as well. But all of this is part of God's sanctification process in both of my life and my wife's life. Someday the sanctification process is going to be complete and I'll undergo a change. But for right now, you've got to deal with the foolishness of the preaching that I bring, so I'm sorry. One day, the glorification of our physical bodies will come. Every believer should be eagerly anticipating and looking forward to the day when Christ calls us home. And I know it's probably easier. That, that glorified body is probably easier. The moment like, you wake up and you look in the mirror and you think, man, that face is looking sadder and grayer every single day. That glorified body couldn't come soon enough. One day it's coming. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that day is coming. As Philippians 3, 21 states, it says, Who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. That day is coming. The moment you're saved, you're justified immediately. And God begins the process of sanctification in you through the Holy Spirit. And that isn't complete until you're received into heaven where we receive our glorified bodies. But until the day of our glorification, as believers, we can be sure that God will never leave us nor forsake us because we are forever his children if we know him personally through faith alone in his word. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you for the reassurance that we have, Lord, that as we have come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that he indeed will never leave us. But Lord, I understand that there may be, here, there may be some here today, Lord, that do not know you personally. Lord, that know for sure that you are not dwelling within them because, Lord, they haven't trusted in Jesus Christ. Lord, his death, burial, and resurrection, all the work that he's done to make salvation possible, to make heaven available. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring conviction to these individuals. Lord, I pray that they would see the need to not wait for a, a better time, a more convenient time, but to re recognize the need for them to turn to you today. Lord, as your word tells us that now is the day of salvation. I ask, Lord, that you would impress upon those hearts, Lord, to throw themselves at your mercy. Lord, to submit themselves under your authority and your power. Lord, to stop trusting in their own hearts and their own wisdom and their own will but to fully surrender themselves to the power of your word and to the finished work of Jesus Christ and to believe that he is all-sufficient for everything they're ever going to need. Lord, I pray that for those that know Jesus personally, have come to faith and trust in him, Lord, that we would live each day knowing that we are dwelling um, with, with Christ. Lord, that we have the Holy Spirit living within us. And Lord, that we would be actively working on cleaning ourselves up of all the filthiness of our flesh and spirits, Lord, to make sure that we are presented before you blameless and without spot. 
Guide us through your Holy Spirit. May we be obedient to what he calls us to do. In Christ's name we pray.